70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, pendengar KBS World Radio, dimanapun Anda berada. Perkenalkan, nama saya Rudy Hartono dari Kalimantan Barat. Hello, KBS World Radio listeners all over the world. My name is Rudy Hatono. I live in Kalimantan in Western Indonesia. I was deeply touched by the journey KBS World Radio took in becoming a station loved by all generations. I really want to mention how popular KBS World Radio is where I am. KBS World Radio's websites and social media accounts are especially a big source of inspiration. I think it provided its listeners with a variety of listening options by making a timely transition to new platforms in this day and age of ever-evolving technologies. I wish you will continue to please your listeners through great programs. Warm greetings from Indonesia. Dari Kalimantan, Indonesia. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday the 1st of March and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang Today marks the 104th March 1st Independence Movement Day in Korea. President Yoon Suk-yeol delivered his first speech commemorating the occasion where he described Japan a partner in tackling security and economic challenges. We'll have more details on the speech for news briefing and we'll also discuss what the speech informs us about Seoul-Tokyo relations for our in-depth today. And then coming up on Korea Book Club, we look at renowned writer Chainor's last work, a conspiracy thriller that makes us question the world around us. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Hunjangjing. <laughs> Today marks March 1st Independence Movement Day, or Samiljal in Korean. 104 years ago, the Korean public bravely took to the streets to call for Korea's independence from Japan's colonial rule. An event commemorating the day was held at the Memorial Hall of Yugwansun in central Seoul today. It was the first large-scale ceremony held in three years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some 1,300 people, including patriots, bereaved families of independence fighters, diplomats and students, attended the event. And what you're hearing now is the sound of orders of merit being awarded to individuals for contributions to Korea's liberation. For more on this event and the rest of the day's headlines, we have joining us in the studio now at KBS World Radio News Editor, Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello, Jungle. 
So those orders of merit were awarded by President Yoon Sung-yeol, of course. It was his first March 1st Movement Day as president, and he delivered a speech which is often scrutinized for the message it sends to the Korean public and also Japan. And President Yoon seemed to focus on Seoul-Tokyo ties and the way forward. Can you tell us more? Right, as you mentioned, when it comes to Independence Movement Day speeches by the president, they keep track of every word, how many times a certain word is repeated at a certain period or at certain times or how it's used. Mm. That's how scrutinized it can be. Well, President Yoon called Japan a partner in tackling security and economic challenges in his speech marking the anniversary of the nation's independence movement against Japanese colonial rule. That a century after the March 1st independence movement, Japan has transformed from a militaristic aggressor of the past into a partner that shares the same universal values with South Korea. And that the two sides now cooperate in issues of security and economy, as well as tackling global challenges. This came as Seoul and Tokyo have been negotiating a solution to the issue of compensation for wartime forced labor victims, an issue that has long been a thorn in bilateral ties, which Yuna sought to resolve with his Japanese counterpart. He emphasized the importance of trilateral cooperation with the U.S. and Japan, especially in dealing with North Korea's nuclear threats. The president also warned that the nation against repeating past mistakes, saying the loss of sovereignty to Japan happened mainly due to failure to properly prepare for a changing world. That remembering all of Korea's history, both glorious and shameful, reading the changing trends and making proper preparations are crucial in preventing a repeat of past misfortunes. He highlighted the importance of remembering the patriotic martyrs, saying failing to do so will leave the nation with no future. Yes, we'll have further analysis of the speech and what it tells us for our in-depth today coming up after this news briefing. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Patriots and Veterans Affairs granted official Korean family registration to 32 independence fighters to mark the 104th March 1st Independence Movement Day. Well, on Wednesday, 32 Koreans who had fought for Korea's liberation from Japan's colonial rule are granted official family registration, long overdue as they had remained stateless after moving overseas before the enactment of the civil codes in 1912 and thus never had a record on Korean public documents. Prior to this, the ministry granted Korean family registration to 167 independence fighters last year, including poet Yoon Dong-ju. The ministry plans to continuously exert such efforts for independence fighters whose remains are set to be repatriated around next month. However, the main opposition Democratic Party chief, Lee Jae-myung, says the Yoon Suk-yeol government is neglecting and harming the spirit of the March 1st independence movement. Uh, can you expand on this for us? Well, Lee made the comment via social media on Wednesday, stressing that a nation can move forward only if history is corrected. He said he believes it is impossible to build trust with Japan without Tokyo assuming responsibility and providing reasonable compensation. The DP leader apparently was pointing out that victims of Japan's wartime forced labor are against the government's plan to compensate victims through a third party instead of waiting for Japanese companies to do so. He said the solution to crisis faced by the Korean Peninsula is pragmatic diplomacy centered on national interests. If out the main opposition bloc will inherit the spirit of the March 1st movement and do its best to lead the nation to the path of such diplomacy. Let's turn to some other headlines now. South Korea posted a trade deficit for the 12th consecutive month in February as exports posted negative growth for the fifth straight month as well. So some concerning figures. Can you tell us more? That's right. According to the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy on Wednesday, outbound shipments fell 7.5% on-year to 50.1 billion U.S. dollars last month. Imports climbed 3.6% on-year to 55.4 billion dollars to post a trade deficit of 5.3 billion dollars in February. 
if ever we saw the 12th straight month of trade deficit since last March. The last time the nation posted a trade deficit for longer than 12 months was some 25 years ago, when the nation logged a trade deficit between January 1995 and May 1997. Exports have continuously declined since last October as semiconductor industries struggled amid signs of a global economic downturn. Outbound shipments of chips slipped more than 42% on-year in February, posting a seven consecutive months of declines. Meanwhile, new data shows South Korea's economy posted growth lower than the average among member states of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, last year. Can you tell us more? According to the Bank of Korea and the OECD on Wednesday, GDP in Q4 slipped 0.4% to post-negative growth for the first time since the second quarter of 2020. The latest growth figure is lower than the OECD average of 0.3%, and it's also the fifth lowest figure to be posted among 29 OECD member states. South Korea was among 10 OECD countries that witnessed negative growth in Q4. Overall, the nation's economy posted growth of 2.6% in 2022, lower than the OECD average of 2.9%. South Korea came to post economic growth lower than the OECD average for two straight years for the first time since becoming a member in 1996. The only other years of logging under OECD average was in 2021 and 1998. North Korea have also been discussing ways to accelerate economic policies. Uh, North Korea's ruling party reportedly discussed rural development strategies as well. Can you tell us more? According to the regime state-run Korean Central News Agency on Wednesday, such discussions were held on Tuesday, or the third day of the seventh enlarged plenary meeting of the 8th Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea. Reportedly, it was attended by related bureaus to advise, to devise rather, scientific and realistic measures to further promote the implementation of the party's rural development strategies and economic policies. The report also said participants extensively reviewed what it described as a conclusion that leader Kim Jong-un reached on ways to achieve continuous growth in agricultural production and actively pursue full-scale advancement in building the North's own version of a socialist system. The report stopped short of elaborating on Kim's so-called conclusion. Turning to the latest in South Korea and China's quarantine measures, the South Korean government lifted the post-entry PCR test requirement for travellers coming from China. Well, health authorities initially disclosed that quarantine measures for arrivals from China will be eased further amid a decline in the infection rate among arrivals from that country. Wednesday's lifting of the post-entry PCR test requirement comes after the government had required travelers from China to take a PCR test for COVID-19 upon arrival and suspended short-term visa issuance as of January 2nd. Following a resurgence of the pandemic in the neighboring country, however, traveling travelers from China are still required to take a pre-entry COVID-19 test and enter their quarantine information into the Q-code system. These two measures have been extended to next Friday. The infection rate for arrivals from China recorded 5.6% between January 2nd and February 27th, while the number of daily infections reported among such arrivals stood between 0 and 1 in recent days. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. President Yoon Suk-yeol delivered his first March 1st Movement Day speech earlier today. The March 1st Day, or Samiljal, commemorates Korea's independence movement against Japan's colonial occupation of the Korean Peninsula 
from 1910 to 1945. And the president's speech is often deemed important as it usually offers insight into the administration's direction in terms of South Korea-Japan relations. During President Yoon's speech today, he called Japan a partner in tackling security and economic challenges, and he also emphasized the importance of trilateral cooperation among South Korea, the United States, and Japan. To analyze the President's speech and give us her insight on the current uh, relations between South Korea and Japan, Professor Imun Jung from the Gongju National University joins us on the line today. Professor, hello, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get your thoughts on the speech, Professor, let's take a listen to an excerpt from the speech today. Here's President Yun. 존경하는 국민 여러분, 3일 운동 이후 한 세기가 지난 지금 fellow Koreans Now, a century after the March 1st independence movement, Japan has transformed from a militaristic aggressor of the past into a partner that shares the same universal values with us. Today, Korea and Japan cooperate on issues of security and economy. We also work together to cope with global challenges. In particular, the trilateral cooperation among the Republic of Korea, the United States and Japan has become more important than ever to overcome the security crisis including North Korea's growing nuclear threats and global polycrisis. We must stand in solidarity with countries that share universal values in order to contribute to promoting the freedom of global citizens and the common prosperity of all humankind. So he said South Korea and Japan must stand in solidarity as countries that share universal values in order to contribute to promoting the freedom of global citizens and the common prosperity of all humankind. So, Professor, what do you make of the president's speech? Well, um, in some way, um, it was uh, pretty much similar with what I expected because I felt like um, you know, President Yoon will um, emphasize the importance of probably common or shared value uh, with the Japan. In that sense, again, I think it was pretty much expected. Um, but um, in terms of length of the speech itself, uh, it was pretty short um, or succinct. So uh, in that sense, I was a little surprised with, uh, uh, with the speech. Uh, because if I compare, for example, um, the most recent one, uh, which was made last year uh, by the previous uh, president, again, the President Moon Jae-in, uh, President Moon at the time last year, he spent actually more than 20 minutes, uh, but this time uh, President Yoon um, spent only less than six minutes uh, to deliver uh, his message to the nations or um, or the, the overseas Koreans. So, of course, the length itself is not really the, the most important thing, mm. um, but uh, still the, the length um, was pretty unusually short, um, which was a little sh- uh, surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Right, so while he emphasised common or shared values with Japan, it was an unusually short speech, as you said, less than six minutes. So considering that then, what do you think was missing from the speech? Yun is clearly looking to continue his drive to improve the strained ties with Japan, but uh, hurdles remain. He didn't mention anything about the issue of compensating the Korean victims of Japan wartime forced labour today during the speech, which has been the greatest source of tension in recent years, of course. Professor? 
Mm-hmm. Well, again, if I compare the the last um, uh, speech made by the President Moon, uh, Moon I'm sorry, uh, President Moon really uh, within his that long speech, he mentioned uh, many different issues, including, of course, you know those. Uh, victims who sacrificed um, their lives uh, for the uh, independence of Korean nation, or he emphasized how um, how continuously Korean nation, Korean people uh, have made efforts to make this country glorious. So uh, again, the, his probably message was much more focusing on the uh, ordinary, common Korean people who really contributed to the glory, today's glory of the country. Uh, but this time, um, again, the President Yoon's speech was pretty much compact, again, the short. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it was pretty much impactful because he, uh, President Yoon, um, has um, emphasized several times uh, the importance of uh, the memory. He said, again, um, you know, we, of course, need to uh, remember uh, the glorious moments of our history. But at the same time, he also emphasized that, again, we also need to remember uh, the negative, dark um, side of our history, too. Mm. So, again, the, that, that was pretty, um, I think, unusual again uh, or interesting um, to listen to uh, because usually, you know, the Korean uh, president leader, um, top leader, uh, probably might not be that willing to mention about, you know, those uh, dark side um, or negative side of our history. So, well, um, I think he probably, I think, um, President Yoon's intention is he... Um, I think he is trying to make a kind of analogy um, between the uh, back then again 100 years ago and the today's Korea's uh, situations because again as he emphasized the security environment is really serious um, tensions are going on and or economic security issues are also very much complex so, so I think uh, his intention uh, was pretty much clear again he um, I think he was trying to emphasize how severe the international environment today um, Korea faces mm-hmm. right uh, he did as I said avoid mentioning though some sensitive issues such as the forced labor uh, victims issue at the moment why do you think that was do you think he had an eye on Tokyo on what they would think about the speech well, um, again, the, for example, Foreign Minister Park Jin, uh, he um, actually met the, the, of course, not all of them, the, but the victims um, uh, of the uh, those forced labor. Mm. And um, Minister Park, um, of course, it was a um, closed meeting, so uh, we can't know the, every single moment of the whole uh, meeting. But um, so far, according to the uh, Foreign Minister Park's uh, explanation, you know, there was probably a, a kind of mood um, in which the uh, um, part of the, the victims or their family uh, somewhat, how would you say, uh, agree uh, with the, uh, um, the today's um, current government suggestion. Of course, there are um, strong opposition too, um, but at the same time, there probably is a, a kind of changing air, changing mood. So as long as, again, the foreign uh, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the government is 
really um, making a big effort to to change the gear, uh, I think President Yoon was uh, probably um, hesitant or uh, cautious um, to um, mention about the other sensitive issue. Probably he didn't want to um, or he wanted to avoid any unnecessary, I think, uh, escalation uh, of the, the specific issue. Mm. Do you think Tokyo will appreciate that? How do you think Tokyo will react to Yun's speech? Well, um, I, I um, have um, had several chances to travel um, to the Japan too uh, since the uh, this COVID uh, pandemic uh, regulation was um, it became a little bit how you said um, uh, the more flexible. Uh, but whenever I um, met the, the Japanese, for example, career diplomats or policymaker. Um, politicians, lawmakers, they said, like, you know, the atmosphere has changed dramatically uh, since the uh, uh, President Yoon came in. So certainly, uh, you know, there, there, um, there is a change, again, especially uh, between the government people. Because, you know, it looks like um, kind of shuttle diplomacy is gradually um, restored. Um, so as long as the two governments um, keep um, keep talking about the issue, um, I think, you know, and some at some point, probably the two governments uh, can uh, find out a uh, um, alternative way hmm. uh, to solve this issue. So, well, well, we'll see. <laughs> but, but anyhow, however, um, my point is, um, again, the Tokyo, um, as long as, um, how would you say, Tokyo, Seoul, Seoul Tokyo keep uh, talking about mm. um, anything we have, um, probably, um, well, they will be uh, more, I think, um, appreciating mm. the, the efforts um, the current, current, current Korean government um, makes. How do you think the Korean public will respond to this speech? Uh, some of the Yoon administration's efforts to improve relations with Japan have been met with criticism, uh, especially from uh, the main opposition Democratic Party chief Lee Jae-myung today, who said such efforts have gone against the spirit of the March 1st movement. Uh, do you think Yoon has the political grounds and support necessary in riding out the possible opposition at home and also for the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida as well? Well, um, unfortunately, the two leadership, as you said, um, their approval ratings are not that not that good, <laughs> comparatively speaking. But, you know, Korea-Japan relation or related issues are not, I don't think it's really the determining variable. Um, you know, of course, the two, two the two governments faced lots of, you know, international challenges, global challenges, uh, or economic situations cannot be that, you know, good as much as before. Um, having had the, you know, for example, war in Ukraine, again, the Russia invaded Ukraine, and ever since the, the war erupted, the uh, econo- economic situation, including like energy supply or food supply, all these things are not good. Um, so more like in the macro level, um, the two countries face um, big challenges. So Korea-Japan, this bilateral tie, um, the issue, um, related issues are, I, I don't think that's really the one the two countries people are uh, really focusing on. I'm not saying those issues are not uh, important, 
But uh, I'm saying, you know, that's really not the top priority uh, mm. for the two countries' people. Or um, um, secondly, I can uh, probably bring the, the recent public survey data here conducted here in Korea. Again, according to the uh, um, the latest um, survey data I saw, you know, MG uh, generation, Korea's, um, you know, the young generation who are between their 20s or 30, more than actually 70%, 70% of the respondents, they say um, the bilateral um, relationship, again, the, between the Korea-Japan should be improved um, mm. because of the economic reasons. Mm. So economic reason was really the top um, reason why the Korean respondents wanted to um, see the improved relations with right. uh, Japan. So, well, the mood, I think, uh, certainly um, is pretty much probably different from what um, Mr. Lee Jae-myung right. was talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, improving relations perhaps hinges also on resolving this issue over compensation for uh, wartime forced labor victims. Uh, do you see progress in negotiations happening soon. Uh, You talked about how uh, negotiations, uh, shuttle diplomacy has been restored somewhat, but we are also getting reports that uh, the South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin uh, will perhaps not be meeting his uh, Japanese counterpart at the meeting of a G20 foreign ministers meeting in India uh, Mm. soon. That's perhaps not a good sign, right? Do you Mm. think uh, perhaps uh, also... There's no sign of uh, Yun and Kishida holding uh, summit talks either. Uh, do you? What do you uh, read into that situation? Well, the the government's suggestion again as an alternative way. Of course, it cannot be fully satisfactory to the, all the victims. Um, I do totally understand. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, my government again, the current government is trying to uh, keep. Um, trying to uh, persuade the victim and their family. So, well, we'll see. Again, I cannot say by when, again, the whole, all this issue can be resolved. Um, but um, we, it is more important for us, I think, uh, to separate um, this issue uh, from some other uh, more critical issues like, again, the economic security uh, or security cooperation uh, with the U.S. and the Japan to deal with the uh, um, threats from the North. Um, again, so this separation or decoupling of the uh, um, all these issues are, I think, are pretty much important. And um, again, the, as I emphasized, the mood has certainly changed. So, um, you know, Japan will be the host for the G7 uh, in May, and mm. and the, the the venue will be in the Hiroshima. You know, Hiroshima as the uh, Prime Minister Kishida's uh, his his own town too. So. Right. Well, I, 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 I want to see, again, um, you know, my president can be um, invited to the G7 meeting too, but well, we'll see. Again, I cannot say, um, again, exactly when they're going to meet, but certainly there is, I think, a um, pretty uh, strong will uh, to meet um, mm. between the two governments. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Imun Jung from Gongju National University. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you.
I am violinist Danny Koo, and you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Okay, there is no stock market update today, as it is a national holiday, meaning that the markets are closed. So we head straight into Korea Trending Now, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have one of our regular contributors for this segment, Walter Lee, joining us in the studio now to bring us those stories. Walter, hello. It's uh, great to see you. Hello, Jang Ho. It's always good to be here. Yes, thank you for coming in on this holiday as well. No problem. So what stories do you have for us today? Okay, so first we have news of the Constitutional Court of Korea upholding the constitutionality of law regarding mandatory military service for men with dual nationalities. Then we'll take a look at the South Korean government's new measures to improve the sustainability of health insurance. And finally, we'll find out which South Korean classical musician will be playing at the prestigious Carnegie Hall in New York next year. Okay, so let's get into those stories, starting with a ruling by the nation's Constitutional Court. Can you tell us more? Yes, so the Constitutional Court of Korea has ruled that the Nationality Act, which allows men born overseas to give up their Korean citizenship only after completing military service, is constitutional. According to the legal community, on Wednesday, all eight judges of the Constitutional Court unanimously decided that Article 12, Paragraph 3 of the Nationality Act does not violate any rights. Okay, so it was a unanimous decision, all eight judges, as you said. I believe this decision came after a man filed a petition to the court, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, born in 2000 to Korean parents studying in the United States, the 22-year-old man held dual Korean and U.S. citizenships. When he applied to give up his Korean citizenship in 2018, he was actually rejected due to the Nationality Act. Now, the act stipulates that a man with dual nationality who was born while his biological parents were staying abroad without the purpose of permanent residence can give up his Korean nationality only when his military service obligation is completed. Now, the man who filed the appeal stated that the intention to obtain permanent residency set forth in the act is ambiguous. Now, the court, however, did not accept this claim. Okay, so his parents were studying in the US uh, when he was born. Born, mm. They did not have permanent residency there then. That's the important detail. Yeah. So what did the court say exactly? Okay, so the Constitutional Court said the provisions of the Nationality Act are intended to prevent opportunistic behaviour by those with dual citizenships from using renunciation of nationality to evade military service. Now, the court added that the definition intention to obtain permanent residency or the purpose of the legislation is not ambiguous enough to cause arbitrary decisions by law enforcement agencies. I see. Uh, was this the only case of an individual filing a petition to the court questioning the Nationality Act? No, it wasn't. So another man claimed that Article 14, Paragraph 1 of the Nationality Act, which allows men with dual nationalities to report renunciation of nationality only when they have an address in a foreign country is unconstitutional due to its vague wording. But again, the eight judges gave a unanimous ruling that it is, in fact, constitutional. In this case, the court said that a person's attempt to renounce citizenship without an overseas resident to avoid military service can infringe on the basic principles of existence and maintenance of the nation. Right, so again, another unanimous decision. So the laws have been set up so that you cannot simply 
have a baby born in another country to obtain citizenship in that country yeah. in order to have that child exempt from the military. That's not a loophole mm-hmm. uh, that can be used, essentially. I think the message is clear. Under the current constitutional law, if you have dual na- nationality, but you have shown no intention to live overseas, you have to serve uh, your country. That is the price you have to pay, essentially, to be a Korean and live here. Mm. It seems the courts are... Uh, not willing to give a leeway on this issue. So that is the ruling from the Constitutional Court. Okay, let's uh, move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Yes, so in the future, for those who visit a medical institution and receive outpatient treatment excessively, the health insurance coverage rate will be raised to 90%. Now, the Ministry of Health and Welfare held a health insurance policy deliberation committee on Tuesday afternoon to discuss measures to improve the sustainability of health insurance and to reduce needless spending amid growing concerns about the ageing population. Okay, so when we say excessive treatment, uh, that can sound vague, but can you walk us through what some of these measures are so we get a clearer picture of what we're talking about here? Okay, so when undergoing an MRI examination for headaches or dizziness, currently health insurance is applied up to three times regardless of whether or not there is an abnormality in the pre-examination. However, according to the ministry's plan, health insurance will be applied only if an abnormality is found during the neurological examination. Multi-shot MRI, in which two or more images are taken at the same time, will be covered only for up to two times a day. Now, for ultrasounds taken before musculoskeletal surgery, they will be covered only when uh, medically necessary. Now, in order to prevent the excessive amount of ultrasounds done in one day, the government plans to establish a standard of limiting the maximum number of such examinations per day. Right, I see. So they are essentially looking to try and raise the threshold of when a medical examination process uh, can be covered. Uh, I understand other measures were discussed? Discussed? Yes. So the government's management of excessive medical use is also expected to be strengthened. Now, usually with the state health insurance, patients need to pay around 20% of the total medical bill. But if one holds a medical indemnity insurance that he or she personally subscribes to, the actual out-of-pocket rate is lowered to 0 to 4%. Because of this, the government's judgment is that there are cases of so-called excessive medical shopping done at cheap prices. Now, as I mentioned earlier, for cases where where individuals receive outpatient treatment at medical institutions more than 365 times a year, that is, more than once a day, the patients need to pay 90% of the total bill. Exceptions will be made for unavoidable cases. Right, so the measures are aimed at discouraging individuals from taking advantage of the system. Uh, Is that right? That's correct. So it's planning on establishing a system to monitor and manage excessive medical users and medical institutions that encourage excessive use. A more concrete plan with the final revised measures is expected to be announced in September of this year. Okay, so it looks like quite a shake-up, but whether that will hinder those who genuinely are in need of the medical services will also need to be weighed up, I feel. That Mm. is uh, probably something that is going to be discussed as they continue to iron out the details over the next few months. Let's uh, move on to our final story for today. What else has been trending? Yeah, well, with K-pop, K-drama and K-beauty sweeping across the globe, South Korea is surprising the world with its achievements in many different industries. 
This time, we are talking about the country's brightest talents in the classical scene. And an 18-year-old pianist from Shihung City in Gyeonggi Province is definitely the one who's getting the limelight right now. Now, interest in Korean pianist Im Yun-chan is exploding in New York, which is considered to be the center of the world's classical music. Now, Carnegie Hall in New York uh, announced on Wednesday, local time, that Im will perform in the venue's Stern Auditorium on February 21st of next year. Yes, Im continues to impress at such a young age. It's pretty incredible to think that he's still only 18 years old when we've been uh, talking about him so much, even on our show right. uh, over the last year. That's, uh, of course, ever since he became the youngest pianist ever to win the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition last year. Uh, as regular listeners of our show and classical music lovers will be very well aware mm-hmm. So can you tell us more about this upcoming performance in New York? Well, will he be performing at this uh, prestigious concert hall? That's a good question. So Im plans to present Fran Liszt's Transcendental Etudes to his New York fans, which he played on the semifinal stage of the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition, which, as you mentioned, he won. Now, Carnegie Hall noted that these etudes are considered to be one of the most technically demanding masterworks. It has also described Im's impeccable piano skills, citing evaluation from Van Cliburn Competition Jury Chair Marin Alsop that Im brings profound musicality and prodigious technique organically together. Trying to acquire tickets in Korea for his concerts has been a challenge uh, for classical music fans with the demand for tickets being so high. I believe it is... has. Similar, so similar overseas as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. So one example of Im's three-day performance with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, which will be held at David Geffen Hall in New York in May this year, the concert is actually already completely sold out. Now, it is highly unusual for a performance like this at the Geffen Hall, at large-scale performance hall with 2,200 seats, to be sold out in three months in advance. Also, the New York Times selected Im's performance at the Van Cliburn competition last December as one of the top 10 classic performances of the year. Now, a video of his performance in the final stage has racked up more than 10 million views on YouTube since it was uploaded on June 20th of last year. Now, so with Im's popularity in the US, it seems like the tickets to next year's performance in Carnegie Hall will also be sold out pretty fast. Yes, his star continues to rise, it seems. That's where we'll wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's time now for our Literary Corner Career Book Club. This is where we explore the world of Korean literature, usually through works available in translation and beyond. Joining me now for that is our literary critic, Barry Welsh. Barry, hello. It's uh, great to see you as always. Yes, good evening. Okay, so what book do you have for us this week? So tonight we're reviewing a novel called Another Man's City. The Korean title is Najikun Tayindure Doshi, and the writer is Che In Ho. It was translated by Bruce and Ju Chan Fulton and published in 2014 as part of the Dalkey Archive Library of Modern Korean Literature. It was originally published in Korea in 2011, and it was Che's last completed work before he died after fighting throat cancer, which he'd been suffering from for 
for several years. Uh, and Che, a very famous writer here in Korea. He had a long, hugely successful career. And he debuted uh, when he was just 18 years old with a story called Patient Apprentice. And over the course of his career, he was famous for writing about uh, industrialization and consumerism that obviously occurred you know, during his uh, adulthood in, in Korea. And later on in life, his work uh, developed to reflect the political environment and his sort of critiques of the repressive uh, consequences of it in the 1980s. Uh, and then later, still, he became interested in Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy and the ancient history of Korea. So a very long career with lots of different peri- uh, uh, periods in it that he that he uh, wrote about different things, mm. and uh, he you know very highly celebrated. The Korean Literature Translation Institute describes him as a gifted writer who can combine entertaining storylines and verbal dexterity with finely nuanced psychological observations and sophisticated urban sensibilities. While his translators, uh, the Fultons, who were very uh, close to Che, uh, said that he will go down in. Korean literary history as the writer who breathed new life into modern Korean fiction on the peninsula. His final work that we're talking about today, Another Man's City, it's a surreal story about a man who realises the world around him is being manipulated. Yes, uh, Che is, as you said, a beloved writer in Korea with legions of fans who followed him throughout his career. His his novels were bestsellers uh, over almost... Uh, for over almost five decades and uh, are still widely read today. In fact, one testament to his success is the fact that at least 19 of his works have been adapted into films, uh, many of which he wrote the screenplays for as well. But uh, going back to today's work, Another Man's City was his final novel, as you mentioned, so what is Chair writing about here? Right, so this story is, uh, it's a, this is a novel that has many reference points or influences that we could point to. And Che is clearly, uh, deliberately drawing on and following in the footsteps of, of some other writers, such as Franz Kafka or Kazuo Ishiguro or uh, Haruki Murakami, uh, and even uh, George Orwell's in there as well in the story. Mm. Uh, and the story, it's set over the course of a weekend. A man called K wakes up at 7 a.m on Saturday morning. Uh, He was out drinking the night before, blacked out and can't remember a period uh, of around 90 minutes from that evening. Uh, And as he goes about his morning routine, he realises that he's lost his phone. And more importantly, as this morning progresses, as he interacts with his wife and his, his daughter and so on, he comes to suspect that something is not quite right. The world has been changed in some fundamental way and he becomes convinced that he's inhabiting uh, a different reality from the day before, that he's in some kind of simulation or some kind of alternate uh, representation of the world. And he thinks to himself, where had this string of events begun? Or was he imagining this? No, it was real and the tricks had started last night. He shook his head. Yes, he was under an illusion. The visible world was real, but his brain had processed it into something distorted. However, as the morning goes on and the day goes on, he becomes uh, increasingly paranoid and increasingly convinced that some unseen force uh, is manipulating him. So why is this happening to him? What does it mean? And to solve this mystery, Kay sets out 
out to find his lost phone uh, in an attempt to you know uncover what happened during these uh, 90 minutes that he was blacked out uh, because this seems the, the key to understanding his his predicament. Right, so this is a sort of paranoid conspiracy thriller set in Seoul, then. It sounds like a novel which has some cinematic influences as Mm -hmm. well. Some of the uh, plot points there reminds me of things like The Matrix or The Truman Show, maybe. So... What do you think then Che was trying to say with these elements? Right, yeah. So it is very much in the mould of, of those uh, of those films and, and films like that. And uh, Che does something extremely enjoyable in this book. He turns this sort of existential inquiry into the nature of reality, the, the nature of your, your own consciousness into a, a, a kind of a gripping page turner, kind of a thriller in a way. Mm. Uh, you know, I think many of us uh, sometimes look out the window at the you know bustling hyper modern soul with its uh, shining skyscrapers and the millions of people rushing to and fro and think this can't be real right, right? How, how is this modern world we live in possible at all how ridiculous and uh, implausible uh, at all it all seems that it exists uh, at all and she is definitely tapping into that idea and he gives it what I, I thought a very satisfying expression in this sort of journey that Kay has over the weekend as he explores Seoul, uh, you know, Seoul in 2010 in search of his phone. But then it's also about this fear that I think many of us have and which is something which has become you know much more of a talking point in the decade since the book was published. It's a very uh, predict, uh, you know, sort of prescient novel in that sense. Mm. This idea that the world around us is being manipulated somehow. It doesn't matter who you vote for or support. The state is all powerful and tracking you at all times. Uh, Despite what you think, you're never free from the watchful eye of Big Brother. And of course, that idea too, that's only increased, right, since Che wrote the novel. If you think about the last uh, few years with, you know, digital tracking and and these types of things. Sure. But then again, if we shift our view again slightly, uh, the novel could be, uh, you know, like a satire about the roles that we occupy in our lives. You know, you're, uh, as a parent, as a colleague, as a lover, as a husband, as uh, you know, whatever your roles in life are, you know, we're all just playing these parts uh, and the whole thing is possibly empty and, and, and meaningless. Uh, th- this, this is a novel that it offers itself up for interpretation. And I think that's one of the, the, the pleasures of it. Uh, but I think one of the most convincing interpretations uh, m- might be to do with Che's uh, religious beliefs. Wow, so there are some quite modern themes in there as well. But that religious aspect sounds interesting. So while Che was interested in uh, and wrote about Buddhism, he was actually a devout Catholic for much of his life, I understand. He converted to Catholicism in the mid-1980s. Uh, with that in mind then, how do you think his religious belief perhaps changes that interpretation interpretation of Another Man's City. Yeah, right. So I think that that his Catholicism might be the key to to, uh, understanding what he was doing with this novel. So there's an extended section towards the end of the book uh, and I think that reveals what he was really trying to get at, what Che was aiming for with this story. So Kay uh, visits a Catholic church uh, in one of the final chapters and he's trying to reckon with the journey that he's been on, these, you know, the various things that have happened to him that he's learned and, and these sort of experiences that he's had over this very strange weekend. And it's here that Che brings, you know, several elements of the story together. And I think really what he's asking is what does it mean to live a good life? 
life. Uh, how, you know, how do we evaluate whether or not we've lived a good life, a moral life, an ethical life? And, and I think it's important to note, Che wrote this book over a, a, a period of two months, and this was after he had his his first sort of uh, battle with throat cancer, his first treatment for throat cancer. Mm. And he perhaps knew that he didn't have long left, or he might not have you know, long left to live. And through this novel, he was, you know, coming to terms with the end of life and, and looking back and wondering what it all meant. And he writes at one point, or sorry, in the, in the novel he writes, if the kingdom of heaven was near, then weren't we citizens of heaven? And if so, then wasn't the Antichrist uh, making us slaves of the earth by promising empty power and glory by tempting our spirits with the same sweet theorizing and clever lies with which he attempted Jesus? And Kay, over this long uh, weekend, he's been tempted by, you know, by various things that are available in Seoul, by the sort of empty power and glory that he calls here of modern soul and in being tempted like this ha- has he been made a slave to something over over his life how how do we free our see- ourselves uh, from these things that enslave us uh, and Che said that this was the book he wanted to be remembered for and it's a very thought-provoking uh, powerful novel to, to end uh, his career with yes it sounds like a very poignant and moving work as well as being thought-provoking and a fascinating page turner as well once again, it's called Another Man's City by Chain Ho. Barry, thank you for telling us about this book. Uh, we look forward to the next one. Take care and we'll see you again next time. OK, take care. And that's where we're going to wrap it up today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.